0: You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, <clears throat> Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at several verses in that chapter. And as you do that, I want to tell you about one of my fondest memories of my grandfather, who we call Pawpaw. Uh He died several years ago. One of my fond- fondest memories of him was sitting on his back deck and him beginning to ask me questions about heaven. And about what it takes for a person to go to heaven. And about Christ. And the reason that's one of my fondest memories is because he was getting near to death. He had cancer. And he knew that his time was, was growing to a close. Throughout our relationship, we never talked much about spiritual things. But there's something about growing near to death that brings a freedom to talk about the most important things in life. Uh, So if you've been with people in their dying days, you've probably recognized this too. Uh, During our lives, sometimes we feel this, like we we can't talk about the most important things. We talk about all kinds of things except the most important things. But there's this great freedom in getting near to death. Um, We begin to confess our sins. We begin to talk about our failures, how we haven't done a, as good a job in life as a father or as a grandfather or you know, whatever our relationship is. Things that we wish we would have done better calls us, causes us to have a great freedom in our speech. And often, if your loved one is the one dying, you might cling to those last few words that they say. You consider their meaning. You treasure them up in your heart. They become important to you because they were important to your loved one in those last days. And it reminds me of the words of Christ as he was nearing his death. He spoke some of the most important words in all the world the day that he died. And of course, every word that Jesus speaks, has spoken, is of inestimable inestimable worth, immeasurable value. Uh, Some of your Bibles, you might have a red-letter edition of your Bible which highlights the words of our Savior. But of course, not only are all the words of Jesus valuable, the whole of Scripture is God speaking to us. You could say, in a sense, the whole Bible is Jesus speaking to us, His Word. Make your whole Bible a red-letter edition. Every word in the Bible. They are breathed out by God, inspired by God, and each word contributes to this wonderful story of God's great creation, man's rebellion, God's work of redemption and restoration. But it is right for us to take some time to consider these words, these particular words of Jesus the day he died. And so that's what we're going to do for the next four weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Traditionally, there are seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, so I'm only choosing four. But by doing that, I'm not saying those other few are unimportant. I've just settled on four that I think would be helpful for us and encouraging for us leading up to Resurrection Sunday. So this morning, we will consider the words from Luke twenty three, thirty four. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So follow along as I read A few more passage, verses of Scripture. Verses 26 through, not quite 38, 26 through um, 36, yeah, through 38, I'm sorry. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, you probably notice that there is a footnote in your Bibles at verse 34, so you follow that footnote down to the bottom, and it says that some manuscripts omit this sentence or this phrase, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if you're familiar with textual criticism, you know that work is constantly being done to try and figure out, to the best of our knowledge and research, what was in the original manuscripts of Scripture. And at this point in history, we have figured out almost with complete certainty what those original manuscripts contained. But there are a few small places where it still is difficult to see that. And this is one of those places. Now, I like how the Net Bible notes treat this difficulty. They say many important manuscripts lack verse 34a. It is included in a, a couple of important manuscripts. It also fits with a major theme in Luke of forgiving one's enemies. So you see, for instance, chapter 6, verse 27 to 36, as we'll read that later. And it has a parallel in Stephen's response in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, where he prayed as he was being stoned, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Also, the lack of parallels in the other Gospels argues for an inclusion here. And then on the other hand, they conclude there are some reasons for seeing it as a later addition. So it's for these reasons, for its textual support, for its harmony with Luke's themes, for its parallel with Stephen's prayer, and really for just the broad theme throughout the Scriptures of forgiving one's enemies that I feel comfortable preaching on this passage and this theme for this morning. So here is our theme. Because Jesus is compassionate towards sinners, He desires their forgiveness. This is an amazing truth. Because Jesus is compassionate towards sinners, He desires their forgiveness. His words express His work. In these ten words, Jesus expresses His extravagant love for sinners. It's a love which moved Him to speak and act on behalf of sinners. It's a love we can hear, in his words, and it's a love we can see in his death on the cross. We hear his love in the words he spoke, and we see his love in the wounds he received for the sake of sinners. So this morning I want us to consider three aspects of Jesus' words here in Luke 23, verse 34. First, the nature of his words. Second, the content of his words. And then the motivation of his words. The nature of them, the content of them, and their motivation. <clears throat> the nature of Jesus' words here are, is prayer. Jesus is praying. Remember the scene. Jesus is exhausted from a lack of sleep, from emotional and spiritual turmoil. I mean, you can, you can begin to just have a, a tiny fraction of the ta- a, a, a taste of what Jesus is experiencing as far as his emotional Turmoil—you can't even get a fraction of a taste of it. But think about those days when you skipped sleep for the night, you pulled an all-nighter studying back in college, or you were, for some reason, you were exhausted the next day. And on top of that, you have broken relationships and criticism or complaining, and things are not working out, and you just are emotionally drained. This is just a tiny fraction of what Jesus. Is going through, and then he has the beatings that he has received, the spiritual turmoil of knowing what is he, he is about to do, what is he, he is about to accomplish. He needs another to carry his cross. Jesus and two other men, criminals, they come to the place called the skull, and there they crucified them. Now you'll notice... That unlike the movies, Luke and the other Gospels, they don't seem to spend a lot of time on all the graphic details of Jesus' crucifixion. Have you ever considered that? Why is it that they do that? Well, perhaps one reason is that since it was more common in their day, they knew what was going on. They knew all about the gruesome details and they didn't have to go into describing those things. But it's also possible that the Gospel writers had something else in mind. And I think this, there's... Some good truth here. In sparing us the gruesome details of the crucifixion, we are freed instead to think on his spiritual agony and on the spiritual purposes of what he is doing. There's a a different focus than simply the physical turmoil and suffering that Jesus is going through. That's what the New Testament writers often focus on. What is it that Jesus accomplished on the cross for sinners? But notice this, in the midst of this physical and emotional and spiritual suffering, what does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. This is the nature of his words. He prays to his heavenly Father. We talked about this practice of prayer some last week, how in the midst of suffering and pain, we can be so tempted to lean on medicine or on the comforts of this life, how slow sometimes we are to pray in the midst of suffering. How quick, on the other hand, we are to question God's motives or care for us. But Jesus prays to the Father. And you see this at every stage of Jesus' life. We see him going to the Lord in prayer. He gets away from everyone else early in the morning, late at night, it doesn't matter, before Satan came to tempt him. Jesus was praying and fasting for 40 days as he taught, as he healed, wherever he went and whatever he did, he was praying to the Father. As the great high priest, he prayed for his followers. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for the Father's will to be done. And as he hangs from the cross, In agony, he knows of no better place to go than to his Father in prayer. So let Jesus be your teacher in prayer here. Let him teach us to pray in the good and bad times, in sorrow and in joy. Let him teach us to pray always so that we might remember that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and cares for us. Don't stop in noticing that Jesus prayed. Also take note of who Jesus prayed for. You can imagine the sights and sounds and even perhaps the smells of that day. The smell of blood in the air, the jeering, the mocking, the laughter. You see the saliva of one who spits on his suspended body. You hear them shouting, Why won't you save yourself? You saved others. Why can't he save himself? And in the midst of all of this, all that Jesus heard and saw, He prays for those who are tormenting Him. He prays for His enemies. It's striking enough that Jesus prays while He hangs on the cross. But even more so that He prays for His enemies. Do we not have a difficult enough time praying as we ought to pray? Spending time, setting aside time for prayer, and then we have to pray for our enemies? But what Jesus is doing is nothing more than living out obedience to his own teachings. He's exemplifying his teaching earlier in chapter 6. To love your enemies. To do good to those who hate you. To bless those who curse you. To pray for those who abuse you. And in verse 35, But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind and ungrateful to the evil. Be merciful then, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus deals a great mercy to those who persecute him. He shows great kindness to those who are ungrateful and evil towards him who crucified him. And in his prayer, he is blessing those who curse him. Now, before we get to the next point, the context of, of uh, content of his words, we see that this is a great mercy of God for sinners. That this one Jesus who has been appointed as the only mediator for sinners is full of mercy and compassion for them. So what grace is this? What mercy is this? What blessing is this that Jesus, the very Son of God, would think to pray for, would intercede... For those who are inflicting such pain on him. So, brothers and sisters, let us learn from him and let us pray. Let us pray for our enemies. If we think that we have just cause against them, still we must pray for them, for Jesus had the most just cause of all. And he prayed for his enemies. Now, we've touched on the content of his prayer just a little bit, but let's del- delve deeper into this. We see the nature of his words is prayer, but now notice the content of his words. This desire for forgiveness. The content of Jesus' words is the desire for their forgiveness. So, Father, Jesus prays, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's clear from these words that Jesus desires the forgiveness of those who are killing him. So at this point, You might feel a tension in your mind about that. How is it that Jesus can ask for forgiveness for those who are killing him, for taking his very life, the very Son of God? Could they be forgiven for the the murder of the most important human in all the world? For killing the one who is fully God and fully man? God coming down in human flesh? We've all heard the idea of the unforgivable sin. If there is an unforgivable sin, wouldn't it be this one? Killing the Messiah, the Savior? But Jesus expresses his earnest desire for their forgiveness. And he he says, for they know not what they're doing. Now, what do we make of this? Is Jesus asking God to forgive forgive? Those who are killing him because of their ignorance? See, excusing their sin for their lack of knowledge? When not long after I first started serving you at CCR, I was driving down Fox Road in Raleigh and towards Lewisburg Road. And what happened as I was moving along the road without a care in the world but the fear of every driver? blue lights behind me and of course your heart starts racing a little bit you think oh no what have I done now and it it was at that point before I even got there I realized I'm in a 35 mile per hour zone and I was speeding Uh, now I I don't know that it actually went like this but what if I had said I'm sorry officer I did not know what I was doing (laughs) I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know what the speed limit was. Pleading ignorance. What do you think he would do? Would he let me off with a warning and say, I'll just give you a warning this time. Just watch your speed and be careful. Now I know from per- some of you may get that treatment, but I know from my own personal experience, that's not the way it works for me. If I get pulled, I'm getting a ticket. Guaranteed. No, he would write my ticket and I would pay the fee. And I would make it right by getting the consequences that I deserved. He would not excuse my sin simply because of ignorance. So what are we to make of this, that Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, he's, I don't think he's simply saying God overlooked their sin because of their ignorance. Brush it under the rugs, you know, push it into the closet and we'll just ignore it, because they're ignorant, they don't know what they're doing. What it appears Jesus is doing is, in his compassion, he is pleading for mercy. Because of their lack of knowledge. Because they don't grasp the magnitude of what they're doing. Perhaps because the soldiers are following orders. It's no excuse for their sin, but he has compassion on them because of their blindness. He prays for the soldiers. He prays for the priests and scribes, for they too didn't fully understand what they were putting, that they were putting to death the Son of God. Now in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul speaks of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the wisdom that this world does not understand. It's foolishness to them. He says, "...we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had under, have understood." For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And what Paul is getting at here is that there is a spiritual blindness which is endemic to all people. We do not naturally have this wisdom which is is from above. We don't understand it. Rather, we are prone to see the cross as foolishness and as weakness. This is how worldly wisdom views the work of Christ on the cross for sinners. Foolishness. Weakness. What can that accomplish? And our tendency it can become to look on the things of this world, power, influence, dazzling beauty, and be captivated by these things as if they are true wisdom and true beauty and true power. But true wisdom and true power is the sinless beaten and bloodied and unclothed Son of God dying on the cross for sinners. This is wisdom and this is power. But we don't know that naturally because of our spiritual blindness. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is what Tracy was praying about earlier. We preach this message of Christ who fulfilled God's law, who was crucified in the place of sinners, and who rose from the dead. And some people do not trust in Him. They do not believe it. No no one actually does. Until the Spirit of God gives them sight. If not for the grace of God, we are all spiritually blind. If not for God revealing Himself to us, we would have not come to know and believe the gospel. It is only by God's condescension to us that we have come to know and love Him. And really, doesn't this move us to compassion for those who are spiritually blind? Because all too often we can become proud Or treat others with contempt because of their blindness. How can you not believe this glorious truth of the gospel? How could you not see the beauty of who Christ is for sinners like us? How could you not grasp this? It's right here. It's clear. It's clear as day. And we forget that we too once were blind with no hope of ever seeing unless God gives us grace. But rather, if we are filled with contempt for those who are spiritually blind, it reveals a spiritual pride. Perhaps that we think somehow we began to open our eyes, we began to open our eyelids, we caught the first glimpse of who Jesus is for us. That somehow we did it by our own effort or willpower that there was something in us that we contributed to open our eyes. But no, it's only by God's grace. And therefore, we ought to be moved with great compassion to those who don't see. Moved with great love for them. Instead of, you, you know the, the term, will bless your heart. Right? The southern term, will bless your heart. It's actually a curse in the form of a blessing, right? Right? <laughs> But it's said with an idea towards someone's ignorance. Treating them with contempt because they just don't know any better. And that's what self-righteousness will do to us, cause us to say that. But instead, the compassion of recognizing someone's spiritual blindness will move us to say, with Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Have mercy on them, Lord. Have the mercy on them that you had on me when I was dead in my sins and transgressions and needed you to breathe life into me, to call me up from the dead. Have mercy on them. They don't see. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of who you are. And John Calvin says that God... The Father actually heard and answered this prayer in part. He says that Jesus' prayer was heard by the Heavenly Father and that this is the cause of why many of the people afterwards drank by faith the blood which they had shed. See, God forgives not by overlooking sin because of ignorance, but by sending His Son to pay for it. For any and all who will come to Him in repentance and faith... Now, another great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, does a great job of bringing this home to us. For he says that the words of Jesus' prayer for forgiveness are left somewhat open-ended. He prays, Father, forgive them. Who are the them? Now, of course, they were, it refers to primarily the soldiers and also the, the priests and the scribes who did this horrible thing. Forgive them for they know not what they do. But Calvin says that they give hope to every lost soul who hears them. Listen to this, he says, Now in that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it, and get into that big little word, them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Before I move on from this, let me, at this point, just make one more application regarding the content of Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. Now certainly, the place we go to find out about how Jesus prays for his people would be John 17, right? The, the great high priestly prayer. He intercedes for his people. He asks that God would keep his people in his name, that God would sanctify them. He asks the Father that, uh, that the Father would make them one, and he asks that the love the Father and the Son have shared would be in them as well. We could also go to the Lord's Prayer. After all, Jesus uh, taught his disciples how to pray, saying, Our Father, continuing on with the Lord's Prayer. But do not overlook this. There is a lesson for us here as well. For here at the cross, we get a window into the prayer life of the Son of God, our mediator. We get a glimpse of how he makes intercession for sinners. And here is our comfort Brothers and sisters in Christ, if Jesus Christ has such compassion, such mercy, such love as to pray for the forgiveness of those who killed him, what will his prayers look like for those who have been washed by his blood, who have been reconciled to the Father? How glorious is the content of Jesus' prayers For those who have been washed clean by His blood shed for them. How full of grace and tenderness the prayers of Jesus must be for those He purchased back from the dead. This is a tremendous comfort to those who are in Christ. That in your sorrows, that in your trials, that in your temptations, the Savior makes intercession for His people. And the Father hears Him and answers for our... This is wonderful news. You probably remember the story of Ruby Bridges. In 1960, she was one of four black children that began attending all white schools. She was the only black child in her school in this integration. And she recounts the story of walking up the side, up the the walkway to the school and seeing people all around her shout and throw things. And this was, she was from New Orleans, so she said it seemed a lot like Mardi Gras. People were shouting and throwing things all around. And it wasn't until she got inside the school that she recognized what the people were doing, what all these white people gathered around were doing. And she saw a lady with a little black doll in a coffin. She says that affected her more than anything else. Can you imagine the horror of going through that? Her mom suggested that she begin to pray. Begin to pray. And so she doesn't remember the content of the prayer, but the doctor who began counseling with her listened to the words that she spoke to her teacher and recorded some of her words. When it was she prayed often as she walked through that mass of people, and she prayed, "God, please God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. I don't know her spiritual state, but that is moving with compassion. That little girl, if that little girl can pray this for her enemies, how ought we, the children of God, pray For those who persecute us. Jesus prays and the content of his prayer is forgiveness. And We've hit on this already some, but notice finally the motivation of his words. The motivation of his words is love. Now you have to ask yourself, what would move a person to pray such a prayer? The word love is not actually here as a description of why Jesus prayed, but it's written all over the pages. And it's really written throughout the book of Luke and the book of the Bible itself. Jesus showed compassion throughout his life on the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the tax collectors, the lepers, those who are outcasts from the society. One of Luke's concerns throughout his account is to accurately portray Christ as the lover of sinners. And in his closing scenes and by writing some of the final words of Jesus, Luke puts an exclamation point on this. On Jesus' love for sinners. For it's not that just, just that Jesus had love and compassion for sinners. He had compass, compass, compassion on even the worst of sinners, as we' have seen, those who took His very life. But this is nothing new, is it? Isn't this God how God has dealt with people throughout history? Sometimes we make this distinction that isn't true and can actually be quite harmful. Some people say this, that the Old Testament God is one of wrath and vengeance. And I like the New Testament God because he's full of love and grace and mercy. And that's just not true, is it? What do we make of the many words of Jesus regarding the topic of hell and judgment? Of the woes that he pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees? Of those who reject him? What do we make of the book of Revelation? with its warnings, descriptions in amazing detail of the judgment which will come against those who rebel against the king. But also, considering the Old Testament, what of the God who spared Adam and Eve in the garden even though they deserved an immediate penalty for their sins? But what did he do? Provided them skins for clothes. And he promised them that their seed, their offspring, would come and make things right. Or what of the God who puts the rainbow in the sky as a reminder that he will never again destroy the world by flood? Or of the God who passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What of the God who patiently leads his grumbling people to the promised land? Of course, time wouldn't permit me to talk about the love of God seen throughout the Old Testament. But it's enough to say with John, God is love. And we love because He first loved us. And God is the prime mover in all these things. He is the one who takes initiative with sinners, the one who condescends, the one who comes down to walk among us. And He is the one who raised up and cruci- was raised up and crucified as an atonement for sins. You see, his compassion and love for sinners not only moves him to desire and pray for the forgiveness of sinners, but moves him to work for it, to die for the forgiveness of sins, to provide the basis for that forgiveness he desires. So what we have in the words of Jesus are not simply well wishes or hopeful platitudes. We have Jesus expressing in words what he is actually accomplishing By his work on the cross. So no, there's not a simple pushing aside or overlooking of sins. Rather, God the Father looked directly upon those sins as they were placed on Christ who was hanging on the cross. For listen to the scripture in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having it nailed it to the cross. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not get over this one fact. Christ has canceled the debt that stood against you. It was nailed to the cross with Him, for on the cross He paid your penalty. And all you who are turning from your sins and trusting in Him to save you, He has taken your punishment, and your sins are no longer counted against you. Isn't this too impossible to believe? Isn't this too impossible to believe? Isn't this too much of a grace? Could it really be that my sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for in full by the perfect Savior? That Christ has really turned away and satisfied the wrath of God which is due to me? Could that really be true? Perhaps the... The difficult thing is not believing that Christ will forgive sinners, but that Christ will forgive me. But it is true. Believe it. With all your heart, for Christ died not only to save you, He lives to make intercession for you. And He's filling you with His Spirit to make you into a spiritual dwelling for God and a people for His own possession. Receive the grace expressed in this old hymn, By E.C. Ellsworth. A crown of thorns he wore. My sins the thorn supplied. A heavy cross he bore. On him the cross I laid. Yet, oh, forgiveness full and free. The dying Savior grants to me. I love this part. For me. Oh, yes, for even me. There is forgiveness full and free. Brothers and sisters, let us walk in that forgiveness. Let's pray.